Section 44 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 3, Chapter 9. Billy and Saxon were gone weeks on the trip south, but in the end they came back to Carmel. They had stopped with Hafler, the poet, in the marble house, which he had built with his own hands. This queer dwelling was all in one room, built almost entirely of white marble. Hafler cooked as over a campfire in the huge marble fireplace which he used in all ways as a kitchen. There were divers shelves of books and the massive furniture he had made from redwood, as he had made the shakes for the roof. A blanket stretched across the corner gave Saxon privacy. The poet was on the verge of departing for San Francisco and New York, but remained a day over with them to explain the country and run over the government land with Billy. Saxon had wanted to go along that morning, but Hafler scornfully rejected her, telling her that her legs were too short. That night, when the men returned, Billy was played out to exhaustion. He frankly acknowledged that Hafler had walked him into the ground that his tongue had been hanging out from the first hour. Hafler estimated that they had covered fifty-five miles. But such miles, Billy enlarged, half the time up or down, and most all the time without trails. And such a pace. He was dead right about your short legs, Saxon. You wouldn't have lasted the first mile. And such country. We ain't seen anything like it yet. Hafler left the next day to catch the train at Monterey. He gave them the freedom of the marble house and told them to stay the whole winter if they wanted. Billy elected to loaf around and rest up that day. He was stiff and sore. Moreover, he was stunned by the exhibition of walking prowess on the part of the poet. Everybody can do something top-notch down in this country, he marveled. Now take that Hafler. He's a bigger man than me, and heavier, and weights against walking, too. But not with him. He's done eighty miles inside twenty-four hours, he told me, and once a hundred and seventy in three days. Why, he made a show out of me. I felt ashamed as a little kid. Remember, Billy, Saxon soothed him. Every man has his own game. And down here you're the top-notcher at your own game. There isn't one you're not the master of with the gloves. I guess that's right, he conceded. But just the same, it goes against the grain to be walked off my legs by a poet. By a poet, mind you. They spent days in going over the government land, and in the end reluctantly decided against taking it up. The redwood canyons and great cliffs of the Santa Lucia Mountains fascinated Saxon. But she remembered what Hafler had told her of the summer fogs, which hid the sun sometimes for a week or two at a time, and which lingered for months. Then, too, there was no access to market. It was many miles to where the nearest wagon road began, at posts, and from there on past Point Sur to Carmel. It was a weary and perilous way. Billy, with his teamster judgment, admitted that for heavy hauling it was anything but a picnic. There was the quarry of perfect marble on Hafler's quarter section. He said that it would be worth a fortune if near a railroad. 
but, as it was, he'd make them a present of it if they wanted it. Billy visioned the grassy slopes pastured with his horses and cattle, and found it hard to turn his back. But he listened with a willing ear to Saxon's argument in favor of a farm-like home, like the one they had seen in the moving pictures in Oakland. Yes, he agreed, what they wanted was an all-around farm, and an all-around farm they would have if they hiked forty years to find it. But it must have redwoods on it, Saxon hastened to stipulate. I've fallen in love with them, and we can get along without fog. And there must be good wagon roads and a railroad not more than a thousand miles away. Heavy winter rains held them prisoner for two weeks in the Marble House. Saxon browsed among Hafler's books, though most of them were depressingly beyond her, while Billy hunted with Hafler's guns. But he was a poor shot and a worse hunter. His only success was with rabbits, which he managed to kill on occasion when they stood still. With a rifle he got nothing, although he fired at a half a dozen different deer, and once at a huge cat creature with a long tail which he was certain was a mountain lion. Despite the way he grumbled at himself, Saxon could see the keen joy he was taking. This belated arousal of the hunting instinct seemed to make almost another man of him. He was out early and late, compassing prodigious climbs and tramps, once reaching as far as the gold mines Tom had spoken of, and being away two days. Talking about plugging away at a job in the city, and going to moving pictures and Sunday picnics for amusement, he would burst out, I can't see what was eating me that I ever put up with such truck. Here's where I ought to been all the time, or some place like it. He was filled with his new mode of life, was continually recalling old hunting tales of his father and telling them to Saxon. Say I don't get stiffened any more after an all-day tramp, he exalted. I'm broke in, and some day, if I meet up with that Hafler, I'll challenge him to a tramp that'll break his heart. Foolish boy, always wanting to play everybody's game and beat them at it, Saxon laughed delightedly. Oh, I guess you're right, he growled. Hafler can always outwalk me. He's made that way. But some day, just the same, if I ever see him again, I'll invite him to put on the gloves, though I won't be mean enough to make him as sore as he made me. After they left posts on the way back to Carmel, the condition of the road proved the wisdom of their rejection of the government land. They passed a rancher's wagon overturned, a second wagon with a broken axle, and the stage a hundred yards down the mountainside where it had fallen, passengers, horses, road, and all. I guess they just about quit trying to use this road in the winter, Billy said. It's horse-killing and man-killing, and I can just see him freighting that marble out over it, I don't think. Settling down at Carmel was an easy matter. The Iron Man had already departed to his Catholic college, and the shack turned out to be a three-roomed house comfortably furnished for housekeeping. Hall put Billy to work on the potato patch, a matter of three acres which the poet farmed erratically, to the huge delight of his crowd. He planted at all seasons, and it was accepted by the community that what did not rot in the ground 
was evenly divided between the gophers and trespassing cows. A plow was borrowed, a team of horses hired, and Billy took hold. Also, he built a fence around the patch, and after that was set to staining the shingled roof of the bungalow. Hall climbed to the ridge pole to repeat his warning that Billy must keep away from his woodpile. One morning Hall came over and watched Billy chopping wood for Saxon. The poet looked on covetously as long as he could restrain himself. "'It's plain you don't know how to use an axe,' he sneered. "'Here, let me show you.' He worked away for an hour, all the while delivering an exposition on the art of chopping wood. Here Billy expostulated at last, taking hold of the axe. "'I'll have to chop a cord of yours now, in order to make this up to you.' Hall surrendered the axe reluctantly. "'Don't let me catch you round my woodpile, that's all,' he threatened. "'My woodpile is my castle, and you've got to understand that.' From a financial standpoint, Saxon and Billy were putting aside much money. They paid no rent, their simple living was cheap, and Billy had all the work he cared to accept. The various members of the crowd seemed in a conspiracy to keep him busy. It was all odd jobs, but he preferred it so, for it enabled him to suit his time to Jim Hazard's. Each day they boxed and took a long swim through the surf. When Hazard finished his morning's riding, he would whoop through the pines to Billy, who dropped whatever work he was doing. After the swim, they would take a fresh shower at Hazard's house, rub each other down in training camp style, and be ready for the noon meal. In the afternoon, Hazard returned to his desk, and Billy to his outdoor work, although still later, they often met for a few miles run over the hills. Training was a matter of habit to both men. Hazard, when he had finished with seven years of football, knowing the dire death that awaits the big-muscled athletes who cease training abruptly, had been compelled to keep it up. Not only was it a necessity, but he had grown to like it. Billy also liked it, for he took great delight in the silk of his body. Often in the early morning, gun in hand, he was off with Mark Hall, who taught him to shoot and hunt. Hall had dragged a shotgun around from the days when he wore knee pants, and his keen observing eyes and knowledge of the habits of wildlife were a revelation to Billy. This part of the country was too settled for large game, but Billy kept Saxon supplied with squirrels and quail, cottontails and jackrabbits, snipe and wild ducks. And they learned to eat roasted mallard and canvasback in the California style of sixteen minutes in a hot oven. And he became expert with shotgun and rifle. He began to regret the deer and the mountain lion he had missed down below the sur, and to the requirements of the farm he and Saxon sought he added plenty of game. But it was not all play in Carmel. That portion of the community which Saxon and Billy came to know, the crowd, was hard-working. Some worked regularly in the morning or late at night. Others worked spasmodically, like the wild Irish playwright who had shut himself up for a week at a time, then emerged pale and drawn, to play like a madman against the time of his next retirement. The pale and youthful father of a family, with the face of Shelley, 
who wrote vaudeville turns for a living and blank verse tragedies and sonnet cycles for the despair of managers and publishers, hid himself in a concrete cell with three-foot walls, so piped that by turning a lever the whole structure sprouted water upon the impending intruder. But in the main they respected each other's work time. They drifted into one another's houses as the spirit prompted, but if they found a man at work they went their way. This obtained to all except Mark Hall, who did not have to work for a living, and he climbed trees to get away from popularity and compose in peace. The crowd was unique in its democracy and solidarity. It had little intercourse with the sober and conventional part of Carmel. This section constituted the aristocracy of art and letters, and was sneered at as bourgeois. In return, it looked askance at the crowd with its rampant bohemianism. The taboo extended to Billy and Saxon. Billy took up the attitude of the clan and sought no work from the other camp, nor was work offered him. Hall kept open house, the big living room, with its huge fireplace, divans, shelves, and tables of books and magazines, was the center of things. Here Billy and Saxon were expected to be, and in truth found themselves to be as much at home as anybody. Here, when wordy discussions on all subjects under the sun were not being waged, Billy played at Cutthroat Pedro, Horrible Fives, Bridge, and Pinochle. Saxon, a favorite of the young women, sewed with them, teaching them pretties and being taught in fair measure in return. It was Billy, before they had been in Carmel a week, who said shyly to Saxon, "'Say you can't guess how I'm missing all your nice things. What's the matter with writing Tom to express him down? When we start tramping again, we'll express him back.' Saxon wrote the letter, and all that day her heart was singing. Her man was still her lover, and there were in his eyes all the old lights which had been blotted out during the nightmare period of the strike. Some pretty nifty skirts around here, but you got them all beat, or I'm no judge, he told her, and again, oh, I love you to death anyway, but if them things ain't shipped down, there'll be a funeral. Hall and his wife owned a pair of saddle horses, which were kept at the livery stable, and here Billy naturally gravitated. The stable operated the stage and carried the mails between Carmel and Monterey. Also, it rented out carriages and mountain wagons that seated nine persons. With carriages and wagons a driver was furnished. The stable often found itself short a driver, and Billy was quickly called upon. He became an extra man at the stable. He received three dollars a day at such times, and drove many parties around the seventeen-mile drive up Carmel Valley and down the coast to the various points and beaches. But they're a pretty uppish sort, most of them, he said to Saxon, referring to the persons he drove. Always Mr. Roberts this and Mr. Roberts that. All kinds of ceremony, so as to make me not forget they consider themselves better than me. You see, I ain't exactly a servant, and yet I ain't good enough for them. I'm the driver. Something halfway between a hired hand and a chauffeur. Hmm. When they eat, 
they give me my lunch off to one side or afterward. No family party like with Hall and his kind. And that crowd today, why, they just naturally didn't have no lunch for me at all. After this, always, you make me up my own lunch. I won't be holding to em for nothing, the damn geezers. And you'd have died to see one of em try to give me a tip. I didn't say nothing. I just looked at em like I didn't see em and turned away casual-like after a moment, leaving him as embarrassed as hell. Nevertheless, Billy enjoyed the driving, never more so than when he held the reins, not of four plodding workhorses, but of four fast-driving animals, his foot on the powerful brake, and swung around curves and along dizzy cliff rims to a frightened chorus of women passengers. And when it came to horse judgment and treatment of sick and injured horses, even the owner of the stable yielded place to Billy. I could get a regular job there any time, he boasted quietly to Saxon. Why, the country's just sprouting with jobs for any so-and-so sort of fellow. I'll bet anything right now, if I said to the boss that I'd take sixty dollars and work regular, he'd jump for me, he hinted as much, and say, are you on to the fact that yours truly has learnt a new trade? Well, he has. He could take a job stage-driving anywheres. They drive six on some of the stages up in Lake County, if we ever get there. I'll get thick with some driver just to get the reins of six in my hands. And I'll have you on the box beside me. Some going that, some going. Billy took little interest in the many discussions waged in Hall's big living room. Wind-chewing was his term for it. To him, it was so much good time wasted that might be employed at a game of Pedro, or going swimming, or wrestling in the sand. Saxon, on the contrary, delighted in the logomachy, though little enough she understood of it, following mainly by feeling, and once in a while catching a highlight. But what she could never comprehend was the pessimism that so often cropped up. The wild Irish playwright had terrible spells of depression. Shelley, who wrote vaudeville turns in the concrete cell, was a chronic pessimist. St. John, a young magazine writer, was an anarchic disciple of Nietzsche. Mason, a painter, held to a doctrine of eternal recurrence that was petrifying. And Hall, usually so merry, could outfoot them all when he once got started on the cosmic pathos of religion and the gibbering anthropomorphisms of those who loved not to die. At such times, Saxon was oppressed by these sad children of art. It was inconceivable that they, of all people, should be so forlorn. One night Hall turned suddenly upon Billy, who had been following dimly, and who only comprehended that, to them, everything in life was rotten and wrong. Here, you pagan, you, you stolid and flesh-fettered ox, you monstrosity of overweening and preannual health and joy, what do you think of it? Hall demanded. Oh, I've had my troubles, Billy answered, speaking in his wonted slow way. I've had my hard times, and fought a losing strike, and soaked my watch, 
and been unable to pay my rent or buy grub, and slugged scabs, and been slugged, and been thrown in jail for making a fool out of myself. If I get you, I'd be a whole lot better to be a swell, hog-fattening for market, and nothing worrying, than to be a guy sick to his stomach from not savvying how the world is made, or from wondering what's the good of anything. That's good, the prize hog, the poet laughed. Least irritation, least effort. A compromise of nirvana and life. Least irritation, least effort. The ideal existence. A jellyfish floating in a tideless, tepid twilight sea. But you're missing all the good things, Billy objected. Name them, came the challenge. Billy was silent for a moment. To him life seemed a large and generous thing. He felt as if his arms ached from inability to compass it all, and he began, haltingly at first, to put his feelings into speech. If you'd ever stood up in the ring and outgamed and outfought a man as good as yourself for twenty rounds, you'd get what I'm driving at. Jim Hazard and I get it when we swim out through the surf and laugh in the teeth of the biggest breakers that ever pounded the beach, and when we come out from the shower, rubbed down and dressed, our skin and muscles like silk, our bodies and brains all a-tingling like silk. He paused and gave up from sheer inability to express ideas that were nebulous at best, and that in reality were remembered sensations. Silk of the body, can you beat it? He concluded lamely, feeling that he had failed to make his point, embarrassed by the circle of listeners. We all know that, Hall retorted, the lies of the flesh. Afterward come rheumatism and diabetes. The wine of life is heady, but all too quickly it turns to uric acid, interpolated the wild Irish playwright. There's plenty more of good things, Billy took up, with a sudden rush of words. Good things, all the way up from the juicy porterhouse and the kind of coffee Mrs. Hall makes, too. He hesitated at what he was about to say, then took it at a plunge. To a woman you can love and that loves you. Just take a look at Saxon there with the ukulele in her lap. That's where I got the jellyfish in the dishwasher and the prize hog skinned to death. A shout of applause and great hand-clapping went up from the girls, and Billy looked painfully uncomfortable. But suppose the silk goes out of your body till you creak like a rusty wheelbarrow, Hall pursued. Suppose, just suppose, Saxon went away with another man. What then? Billy considered a space. Then it'd be me for the dishwasher and the jellyfish, I guess. He straightened up in his chair and threw back his shoulders unconsciously as he ran a hand over his biceps and swelled it. Then he took another look at Saxon. But thank the Lord I still got a wallop in both my arms and a wife to fill him with love. Again the girls applauded, and Mrs. Hall cried, Look at Saxon, she's blushing. What have you to say for yourself? That no woman could be happier, she stammered, and no queen as proud, and that... She completed the thought by strumming on the ukulele and singing, The Lord moves in mischievous ways, his blunders to perform. 
I give you best. Hall grinned to Billy. Oh, I don't know, Billy disclaimed modestly. You've read so much. I guess you know more about everything than I do. Oh, oh, traitor, taking it all back, the girls cried variously. Billy took heart of courage, reassured them with a slow smile, and said, Just the same, I'd sooner be myself than have book indigestion. As for Saxon, why, one kiss of her lips is worth more than all the libraries in the world. End of section 44